I'm going to say it again. And I know the title is resonating with you because of the state of our world, which is why I'm preaching it. I didn't sign up for this. What you do when the abnormal becomes the new normal. Several months ago, many of us looked at what was then an emerging public health crisis and imagined that it would be a temporary pit stop. We saw it from miles away. We saw how it was affecting different countries. We saw uh, the, the, the distress that, that others were going through. And we imagined that it couldn't, some of us imagined that it couldn't happen here, that it wouldn't happen here, or that somehow we would come up with something before it affected us in the way that is affecting us now. Though there was significant concern by some, most of us never thought that we would today be several months into a global pandemic with no clear end in sight. Nor had we considered the domino effect the pandemic would have on economics, education, childcare, church activity of all things, and countless social interactions that today, that then we took for granted and now we don't. Early on, we submitted to quarantine protocols, some of us, <laughs> and self-consoled by repeating to ourselves, I can't wait for things to get back to normal. I can't wait for things to get back to normal. I can't wait to get back to my, my, my daily job. I can't wait to get my kids back in school. Can't wait to go back to restaurants. Can't wait to have my parties. Can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. And others were far more assertive than that. They weren't waiting to get back to normal. They insisted that things return to normal. Some petitioned the government for looser restrictions. Some ignored government altogether and made their own rules, refusing to wear masks, ignoring precautions about physical proximity, and going about their lives as if there were no pandemic at all. People defied pandemic restrictions in the name of faith in the name of civil rights, and to resist sinister plots to rule the world. But I'm not quick to judge. The balance between practical precaution and principled stands against whatever larger evil you may believe is plaguing the world is difficult to call. It's a tough call. There's a lot of things going on. You're not quite sure what's true, what isn't true. I get it. We live in odd times where the truth really is stranger than fiction. As a pastor, I don't have the privilege of thinking only about my personal opinions. I'm legally and spiritually responsible for the well-being of hundreds of people. Hence, while I don't trust everything I hear, I can't make decisions based purely on conspiracy theories. I have to weigh evidence-based conclusions, scriptural truths, and promptings by the Holy Spirit. And right now, all three of those things are telling me this. We might be here for a while. And hence the title of this sermon and series, I didn't sign up for this, what to do 
when the abnormal becomes the new normal. You know, psychologists talk about various stages of grief, and one of them is the stage of denial. We reject what is in front of us. And the challenge is that when we are rejecting something that we can't control, we're not spending time and energy uh, into things that we can control. To put ourselves in a better position to respond to the thing we don't like. And so, as I think about that, I think about the words of a, from a sermon that a preacher preached not too long ago. His name is Bishop Dale Bronner, and he was preaching a message on, it was called the, it was called the Divine Reset. And I was listening to his message on YouTube, and he made a statement that struck me. It, it distilled something, I believe, but he put it in words that I hadn't heard before. And I think these words are appropriate for us to think about as we ponder how we adjust to this new normal. These are his words. The goal is not to get back to normal, but to get back to God. I'll say it again. These are the words of Bishop Dale Bronner. He says this, the goal is not to get back to normal, but to get back to God. You know, God wants to get back to normal too. But the challenge is he wants to go back to his normal, not our normal. God is interested in things changing as well, but he's not wanting to change things to fix, to go to our concept of good, but his concept of good. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about when we talk about getting back to normal as far as church is concerned. What is that for most church folks around the country, if not the world. It's people coming into a building every week as passive consumers of Christian content. People come in, people go out as passive consumers of Christian content. And they come into the building with the same kind of expectations they have of Nordstrom's, of Disneyland, of Starbucks, of Apple Computer. They want good customer service. They don't want things to take too long. They want to come in. They want to come out. They want to consume. They want to be entertained. They want to have that high. That comes from a dynamic entertainment and consumer experience. But here's the question. What does God want? What is God's normal? What is God wanting from his church? 
You see, we're going to get into this a bit today as we look at the book of Jeremiah, uh, but I'm going to reference uh, something related to that, what I'm going to talk about in Jeremiah. I, I talked about it at our prayer meeting this Friday, but we talked about, this Friday we talked about the, uh, during a, a short brief word of exhortation, we talked about the book of Ezra and how in the book of Ezra, the people had an emotional attachment to a building that they, they, were, they were removed from their, from their place of worship for 70 years because of exile, because of colonization. They, were, they had an emotional attachment to the building, but they weren't actually faithful to God himself. And what happens is, and I've heard, I've heard people say this, and it's the truth, in the context of being displaced from our physical place of worship, Everybody is reduced to their actual relationship with God. And that is the question. That is the question God is asking us. He's saying, am I enough? Am I enough? God is saying, can I sustain you all by myself? He's asking, why do you need those things when you've got me? Now, I'm not suggesting that what God is saying or what I'm saying here is that we shouldn't gather together. That is a biblical command. In Hebrews, it tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We understand the spiritual power of corporate worship and praise and prayer. I'm not dismissing that. But what I'm asking you, what is the thing you're actually hungry for? Is it him? Is it him? Because if it's him... He can sustain you, even when you're displaced from your building, just as he did with the children of Israel. Now, putting the focus back on God means a lot of different things, but let me talk about some practical steps we can take within the context of keeping God as our focus. And in fact, we'll build on that word context because the, the first step I want to focus on is discerning the context. Going to God to discern the context. God invites us to discern the times. He invites us to discern what is going on, not just naturally, but spiritually. So we have a better sense of how to situate ourselves in relationship to the crisis. And I was reading this morning in the book of Genesis, I was reading about when Joseph was promoted as the second in command in Egypt, and God gave Joseph wisdom about how to respond to a famine that was going to affect the entire world. The famine wasn't going to go away, but because of the wisdom that God gave Joseph, he, you, when you get wisdom, what it, what it showed us is that when we get wisdom from God about a crisis, that he can affect how we experience the crisis. You may not be able to stop the crisis, but by going to him, God will help you experience the crisis in a way that doesn't mean the end of you. And that's what we saw in the book of Genesis when Joseph had the wisdom to help Egypt have a surplus in the midst of famine and preserve God's people. Now, with respect to discerning the context, I want to go back to a passage of Scripture that I've gone to several times over the last few weeks, and that's Matthew 24, 3 through 14. 
I think this is a practical way of discerning the context because in light of what we are seeing happening before our very eyes, we have to ask ourselves, are we in or very close to what Jesus prophesies about in Matthew chapter 24? Let's read verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Folks, this is unavoidable. Jesus is returning, and there will be an end to this age. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in somebody's lifetime. Why not ours? Why not ours? Verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And verse 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So these are, you could argue that these are things that we are seeing now. Certainly every generation who's been Christ followers have assumed that the global events in their time were fulfilling these passages. And perhaps we're just another generation who's thinking that yes, it might be, we might be the generation that sees the second coming of Christ. Um, we don't know, but we do need to look at it. In fact, Jesus would often tell his disciples, watch and pray. Don't just pray, but watch. That is, you need to be discerning the context so that you know what time it is so you can effectively position yourself appropriately with respect to it. So, we know there's roars and rumors of wars. When he talks about many coming in my name, we know that there are many people purporting to be Christ-like or be supporting an idea that, that, that they would suggest is doing Christ's work and, but aren't actually Christ. These things are going on today. But what does he say in verse 6? He says, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. It's amazing how many people are paranoid thinking that these things that are ha in terms of the restrictions with respect to our ability to worship, that somehow they think is going to destroy the church. No, it isn't. Jesus says, don't be troubled. You know, the church has been through far worse, folks. And we're going to read about it later today in Jeremiah, the, the, the people of God in the Old Testament. They've been through far worse. They were 70 years removed from their, from their physical house of worship. God sustained them. God sustained them. The church isn't going anywhere. And what is Jesus saying? These things must come to pass. That means you can't pray them away. You can't pray them away. They have to come. You know, Jesus himself tried to pray away his hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. He went to the Father. He said, Father, you can do all things. And, of course, he can do all things. So since you can do all things, take this cup away from me so I don't have to die on the cross. The Father didn't answer that prayer. And this is the same Jesus who had calmed the storm. He had raised the dead. He had multiplied the loaves. He had healed the sick. But he could not pray away this hour because he had to fulfill the will of the Father. This had to come to pass. And it could be that we're in a moment where there are things you cannot pray away. They have to come to pass. However, if you seek God, they can affect 
if you, if you do pray, it can affect how you experience what's coming to pass. Verse 7, it says, so, so, so verse 6, he says, these things must come to pass. He says, but the end is not yet. This is not the end yet. This is not the final thing, but it's building up to the end. It's a precursor, and, what, and, and it continues with the kinds of things we'll see. Verse 7, for a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We talked about that a few weeks ago where nation, that's referring to groups of people. The root word there is ethnos in the Greek, referring to uh, people groups. Right, And then there's kingdom against kingdom. That Greek word is basilia, which is referencing governments. So we see that today. We see the racial uh, conflict globally, and we also see the governmental tension, which is going, has been going on throughout most of human history, of course. But we do see it today, those kinds of things happening. And there will be famines. Those are happening around the world. Pestilences. Plural, and a pestilence basically is what we're experiencing right now with respect to the coronavirus. That's a pestilence. The Bible says there'll be more than one. This is not going to be the last one. And earthquakes in various places. There are certainly folks who've been monitoring earthquake activity over the last several decades and have been acknowledging that there's been an uptick in the number of earthquakes. Are we living now in Matthew 24? Possibly. I don't know for sure, but I'm looking carefully at all these things going on, and I'm saying to myself, I need to discern the context. Verse 8, it says, all these things are the beginning of sorrows, or in some versions it says birth pains. In other words, these things are like contractions. Right, and if, you, if you're familiar, if you've had a baby or you, you're familiar with someone who's had a baby, you know that the contractions, you know the baby's coming closer when the contractions happen with more frequency. So those are the things that we should be looking for as we see these things happen more and more and more and more. We got to watch. But it continues, verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Most Americans don't like to think about that. Certainly many uh, Christian Americans who have a word of faith context, which is that, that is part of our tradition, that is part of our history, okay? But as I say that, I'm a word of faith person, but I don't deny the reality of persecution, particularly when Jesus says it's going to happen. It says, tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. It may not be happening in America, but it's happening around the world. It's been happening around the world for years in various countries where if you come to Jesus, if you make Jesus the Lord of your life, if you become a Christian, you are putting your life at risk. It's happening today. Verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another. Some of us are concerned about people being disillusioned by Christianity and dismissing it and leaving the faith. That's happening today. And it says they will hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. There's people preaching false gospels, things that are not consistent with Scripture. That's happening today. And because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. But what does it say in verse 13? It says, but the one who endures to the end 
will be saved. What's the key? Endurance. Endurance. There are going to be some things that you won't be able to change, but you will be able to endure if you keep God the focus and not a church service the focus. We're going to have church services eventually. They're going to come back. But in the meantime, we got to keep our focus on God. It is God that will help you to endure. Not your favorite worship song by your favorite singer or not your favorite sermon by your favorite preacher. That's all good. We need that. We want that. I hope you're, uh, uh, you know, taking advantage of the YouTube things and the online services. But let me tell you, you got to have your own relationship with God. That is what's going to help you to endure the things you can't change. And I love verse 14. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I'm going to read that again because that has some significant implications here. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, what does that mean? That means that the gospel is going to be preached to the entire world. There's places in the world right now that don't even have a written language. Uh, they, 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 they have no, so they don't have a Bible that can, they can read. And there are certainly missionary organizations that go out to these various places around the world, various tribes or what have you, and they send people to live with the folks who uh, don't have the, the gospel. They, they, they spend several years learning the language, and after that, they, tra- they and they turn it into a written language, and then they take that written language and write a Bible. That might be a 20-year a process. But what this verse is saying essentially, think about this. If the gospel is being spread around the world to every nation, it means the church of God has had a revival. It means that the church of God has been revitalized. It means the church of God has been renewed. So think about this. Within the context of all this persecution and all this tribulation and all of these natural disasters and and pandemics and pestilences and famines, in the context of all of that, the church will emerge and be stronger than it's ever been. Think about that. So this is a time to rejoice because, in fact, if you look at church history, it's it's always been this way. The church is most spiritually productive within the context of persecution and difficulty. Historically speaking, that is the case. The church has been the least productive when we're comfortable, when we think things are going well, But more people come to Jesus when there's tribulations, persecutions, and difficulties. Because sometimes that's what it takes to wake up the church. I have one more step to talk about today. So the first one was to discern the context. And the second is this. 
to distinguish between the things you can control and the things you can't control. I kind of alluded to that in the first step, right? So first we might need to recognize that this is not an ordinary moment. This is not just something that is just happening. These aren't just natural forces at work. There are spiritual forces at work and there are demonic forces at work, and then there are heavenly forces at work because God is shaping the human experience in such a way that it culminates in a new heaven and a new earth. And we are not in a place to pray away something God prophesied would happen. So in the meantime, we have to draw upon the wisdom of the Lord to help us navigate circumstances that in some cases may not be the ones we preferred, but ones that God allows. And within that context, we draw closer to God and closer to his concept of normal. God is taking us back to his concept, not our concept of normal, his concept of normal. What does God call normal? So step two here, I'm going to read Jeremiah 28 here. Very interesting passage of scripture. And in this passage, I'm going to read Jeremiah 28 and 29. Uh, we, we often read Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, that, that special verse. Many other plans I have for you. That's how it starts, right? And we like to think of that scripture as one that is encouraging for us no matter where we are because we know God has a plan for us. But I want to talk about that passage within the context of the other verses. So I want to start with Jeremiah 28. Um, and at this point, what's going to happen is they've, they've been, uh, like I told you, uh, they were colonized. They were taken from their homeland by the Babylonians and they're exiles, they're slaves, they're that their, their homeland has been taken over, so they no longer are able to uh, worship in their building. Similar to us, except not because of colonization. We're because of a pandemic, but for their, in their case, it was because of colonization. So Jeremiah 28, it says this, In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Haniah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord. So here's Jeremiah and here's another prophet called uh, Hananiah, and this prophet has a prophetic word that he wants to share with Jeremiah, who's another prophet. It continues. The prophet from Gibeon, Gibeon spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests, and all the people, saying, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Okay, remember, Babylon is the country or the kingdom that invaded Israel and took them from their homeland, brought them to Babylon, and took over their land so that they no longer are able to worship in their building, which is in Jerusalem. So this Hananiah is prophesying that the yoke, right, or, 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 or the, 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 the thing that, that, that keeps Israel attached to Babylon in slavery, that God is about to break this yoke. Verse 3, this is what he says. Within two years, I will bring back I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. Verse 4, and I will also bring back to this place uh, Jeconiah, the son of Je Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. 
So again, Hananiah has this prophecy that in two years, it's going to be restored, which is a relatively quick amount of time, right? Uh, in two years, it'll all be restored. I'm going I'm to stop Babylon from oppressing you, and you're going to go back to your place of worship. This is the word of the Lord. Exciting news. I would get excited about that if I had just been exiled, taken away from my homeland, no longer able to go back to my building to worship. I would be excited about that. But is that the truth? Is that the truth? A lot of us want to hear a word that says, you know what? This thing is going to be done tomorrow. We, we, we won't have to deal with this in two days. Just wait till next month. Just wait till next week. But guess what happens? Verse 12. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars from off the neck of Jeremiah the prophet, so Hananiah was so dramatic with it, he actually took some wooden bars and broke them as a dramatic representation of how God would break the yoke of Babylon. But then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, another prophet, and he says this, verse 13. Go tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And they shall serve him, for I have given to him even the beasts of the field. What is God saying? He's saying this. I put the king of Babylon in power, and all these nations will serve him. In other words, Hananiah is wrong. Y'all going to be here for a while, because this is my doing. Verse 15, and Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Thus says the Lord. There's people who are prophesying. They're making declarations the Lord did not say. He says, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. Verse 17, in that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. He gave a prophetic word the Lord did not give. It was encouraging. It was exciting. It, it would have been great if it had come to pass. It's just that the Lord didn't say that. Jeremiah gave the true word of the Lord, and that was saying, which was this, this uncomfortable thing you're going through, it's because I have designed it that way. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. So this is what he, Jeremiah then has to correct what people have heard from Hananiah. They think this thing is going to be short. Jeremiah saying, you're going to be here for a minute. And so he sends the letter in verse 1. He says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 2. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. So that's giving you a sense of the, the, the large number of people who had left Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where they were worshiping, but because of colonization, they were not in their uh, worship building. So verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elisa and the son of Shaphan uh, and uh, Jem 
Jemariah and the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon. That, that, I, I accomplished something right there saying that. To Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said this, verse 4. Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. God is saying, I sent you into exile. And of course, if you know the context, it's because of their sin. It's because they had drawn away from God. They had moved far from God. They were doing abominations. And so he sent them into exile. What does he say in verse 5? Build houses and live in them. In other words, folks, get comfortable in Babylon. You're going to be here for a minute. Get comfortable. You might be here for a little while. So go ahead, build a house. Don't rent, just build. Get, get comfortable, right? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Don't build a temporary tent. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I know it's crazy out there. Folks are uh, suspicious. They're not trusting of what's going on in our world. You may not be trusting our political leaders or what have you. There's, there's a lot of reasons to be untrustful for many people because of the inconsistencies. But folks, we're here. And God is saying, while we're here... Pray for the welfare of the city, of the state, of the government, because as they do well, we do well. Why? Because we're going to be here for a minute. And when I say a minute, I mean longer than we want, longer than we expected, longer than we had planned to. As the pastor of this church, like many people, when I first heard the news about the prospect of a pandemic, I was praying it wouldn't get here. I was praying it would never happen. I was praying it would never touch our shores. But it's here. And then I have to ask myself, what if this thing goes on for two years? Am I going to put everything on hold? No, we have to continue to live. We got to continue to grow. And we got to pray for the welfare of our nation, of our state, and of our city. Because as it does well, we do well. This is not a time to curse America. Not the time. It's the time to bless America because the welfare of the country is going to affect our welfare. So we need to be good citizens in this country. And good citizens pray for their country. Let's jump down to Verse 10, it says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. He says, but y'all going to be here for 70 years first. You're going to leave. It's going to be done, but you're going to be here for 70 years. Now, I don't think the pandemic's going to be 70 years. I don't believe that, but I believe it'll be longer than we had planned. He'll, he'll, he'll bring us back, but in the meantime, we've got to let our relationship with God 
help us to endure. And then that's when we get to verse 11. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. He's saying that within the context of this. Yo, it's going to be rough for 70 years. But what's going to sustain you is knowing that I have a plan for you, that I didn't put you in exile so that you would be destroyed. I know how to sustain my own people. Y'all going to come out of this. So hold on to this promise as you endure the difficulty, knowing that the church will rise victorially. Yes, the scripture says there'll be trials and tests and tribulations and persecutions, and you'll be hated by all nations, and there'll be famines and earthquakes, but God knows how to sustain his own. And the Bible says, we see it how it ends in the book of Revelation, that we'll be at the marriage ceremony of the Lamb. There will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. And Jesus will reign victoriously on the, victoriously on the earth. That's going to happen. But in the meantime, we endure because of the promises of Jesus. Amen? If you're listening here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't come across as a cliche. I'm sure this is language you've heard before. When you hear relationship with Jesus, it just might sound like church language, but I mean that as literally as I can, that... You need a relationship with Jesus. 